Welcome to the Jesus Church Podcast. We're a family seeking to become like Jesus, empowered by His presence, to partner in God's creative work of restoring the world. We pray this episode encourages and equips you along the journey. We're all in process, becoming something. Like a potter throwing clay or an artist mixing color, our lives are being formed. Different backgrounds and experiences blemished and cracked. Each day, an opportunity to move into or out of all that God has purposed. So the question isn't if we are becoming, but rather who are we becoming? And in this family, we want to go on the journey of becoming like Jesus. Well, hello, hello everyone. How's everybody doing this morning? Yeah, it's like kind of like halfway there. That was definitely a stronger response than the first gathering, but I get it. It's kind of like the rain came back. We had such a beautiful day yesterday, and then it's raining again. That's my welcome to Oregon in the spring, I guess. Hey, we are going to be doing a Bible study, so if you need a Bible, go ahead and throw a hand up in the air. Uh, One of uh, the ushers around the room would love to get one into your hand. My name's Tim McDonald. If we haven't met before, uh, I'd love to meet you. My wife, Brittany, and I, uh, we're pastoring here at the church. We would love to get to know you, so please find us. We're usually trying to stand by that front door afterwards. Introduce yourself to us. We'd love to get to know a little bit about you and your story. Um, At AJC, we are committed to living as a King Jesus family. As Shelby said, we, we have set aside time in our lives and in our schedule and all that we're doing to become more and more like him. In fact, that's a part of the reason why for the last eight months or so, we've been on a journey through the book of Luke, studying specifically what does it mean for us to become more like him? You know, to, to value the things that he values, to 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 get angry about the things that Jesus gets angry about and to celebrate and have joy around those things that he celebrates and has joy around. We are here for Jesus and and, and to become more like Jesus in our day-to-day life. So that's a part of why we're in this series together. And if you're joining us in this series, we actually have some resources available for you uh, online at the Connect space. So if you go uh, to jesuschurch.org forward slash connect, you'll find all of these like resources that we have available that are connected to the teaching. We've got all the last teachings, but we also have a reading plan if you wanted to read along with us as we're going through the text. And then you'll find that some of the, we, in some stages, we actually skip over certain parts of the text. And what you'll find are these extra conversations that are done on our House of Learning. Richard and his crew have done a great job of doing these kind of podcast-style conversations around some of these texts that we just don't get a chance to get to on Sunday mornings. I would strongly recommend and encourage you, check it out. You will be thankful that you did. So last week, we had this amazing Easter experience together, remembering the gift that Jesus has given us through his death and his resurrection. And we remembered the reality of his life that is now available to us. He has destroyed death. And now he's opened up this door for all mankind to come to be known by him and to know him forever. 
One of the primary images that we have for this in the New Testament is that of a feast. Actually, it's, it's even sprinkled throughout the Old Testament. This idea of, of eating together, coming around a dinner table, it's actually a part of the reason why at Easter time, it's really common for us to, to circle up around the family table and ironically have ham. But, you know, I think Jesus is okay with that. Um, and, and, and we eat together, we celebrate together as a family, uh, and in a lot of ways, pointing forward to this time of celebration uh, in the kingdom. And it's interesting because Jesus has a lot to say about food. Jesus loved to eat. He was always on his way to a, to a, a table, to a party, to go eat somewhere. He was talking about food, using food in his parables. It was just a big part of his life. It's one of the things that makes him so amazing. He would be a really great Portlander, actually, in some respects. You know, so much food. And today's text is no exception. So if you would, grab your Bibles and open up to Luke 14. Luke 14. We're going to be looking, starting in verse 15. And once you get there, if you would, go ahead and jump back up to your feet. We're going to do a little bit of that Christian, Christian calisthenics. Up and down, up and down. Got to keep the blood moving. And I'm going to read this passage over us. Luke 14, starting... In verse 15, it goes like this. When one of those that was at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began making excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to go try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you've ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the fact that you are a God that identifies and knows us. You're a great high priest that you connect with our story. You literally have sat around dinner tables, kitchen tables, having conversations with your disciples, having conversations with these Pharisees. Lord, you in so many ways have walked the path that we have. And we thank you for that. And Lord, today, as we open up this text, would you, would you be our teacher and our guide? Would you open this text up to us? Help us to hear your spirit's voice. Would you lead us in it? Uh, and, and as we consider these truths, would you just unlock them for us? Lord Jesus, we're here to learn from you. We love you. This is all about you and for you. And so we fix our eyes on you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. You can grab a seat. Okay, so before we jump into this parable today, we need to do a little bit of like background biblical groundwork. Um, I want to set the stage for this passage a little bit. So keeping your finger in the book of Luke, flip back to Genesis. We're going to be looking at Genesis 12. 
Um, and, and for those of you who are maybe new to the scriptures, Genesis is like right at the front of your Bible. If it's not right at the front of your Bible, maybe try to switch with your neighbor because uh, there's something wrong with your Bible. Um, but we're going to be looking at Genesis 12. And in, in Genesis 12, we find kind of the early story of who we are as a people. And as we mentioned in that lead up series to Easter, our story starts with a very good creator uh, who does very good things. He pulls into existence the most beautiful parts of our world. He, he creates the mountains and the coastlines and, and sunrises and the starry skies. He is an amazing creative. And at the center of his good creation, uh, he creates humankind from, from the very earth that he just made. Man and woman, Adam and Eve, the very first family. And he, his handcrafted kids, image bearers that would partner to care and create and cultivate in this new world that he had just made. And when he's all done, he, he steps back and he says, this is very good. And he pronounces a blessing on his work. And then he takes a day of rest. In the midst of the garden, there were two trees that God had planted. One was the tree of life and the other was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God tells his kids that they can eat of every tree in the garden except for that tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And it's like one no in a beautiful garden of yeses, a gift of free will in the garden called delight. Unfortunately, we know how the story goes, right? Adam and Eve decide, are deceived by God's ancient enemy and they decide that they want to determine what right and wrong is for themselves. They want to become like God, which is a painful, tragic irony because they already were. And from that one decision, brother began murdering brother. There was a twisting of sexuality and a twisting of power and evil entered into our story and death. And after about like eight chapters of like this downward spiral from the Garden of Eden, we're finally introduced to another family, a new family. And at first, there doesn't really seem to be much distinct about this family, but after a little while, it becomes clear God has a plan. Uh, and this plan includes partnering with this husband and wife team, Abram and Sarai. And so God, he calls Abram to leave his country and to, to head out in faith to a country he would show them. And then he says these words in Genesis 12, verses two. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So, Abram goes. And along the way, him and Sarai, they have their names changed to Abraham and Sarah. And they do become a great nation, just like God said. And, and, they, and they were deeply blessed, just like God said. And they grew into this family that was set apart to be a blessing to all of the nations. But that's where things get a little bit complicated, right? It was a really good plan. Um, and God would funnel his love and blessing into a community, into a family that would teach all of the nations about who he was, about what he was calling his kids to, and then extending his blessing out to the entire world. 
But though God was relentless with his plans and partnerships, basically, the entire Old Testament is one story of them not getting it right, of them failing time and time again. And in the midst of all of these ups and downs and the roller coaster of this story, we begin to get little glimmers, little hints of, a, of the next stage of God's plan. God's prophets begin pointing forward to a time where he himself would step into the story and make things right for everyone, for all people. We read this in Isaiah 25, and it'll be up on the screen. Isaiah 25, verse 4. You have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in their distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. Verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine. The best of meats and the finest of wines. It sounds like an incredible party. And on this mountain, he will destroy the, sh the shroud, or another translation, the veil, that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Sounds a little like an Easter sermon I just heard. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all of the earth. The Lord has spoken. It seems that God, like God is going to throw a banquet, a party. And his plan is, is that he would bring his blessing to all people the way that he always intended. He would pull his kids back together around the family table. He would deal with death and, and remove disgrace from the kids of Adam and Eve. In short, God was going to get his family back. Enter Jesus. Now, let's head back to Luke. We've been studying Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, and spoiler alert, Jesus is God in flesh, okay? Just in case you guys didn't know. And he goes out of his way to bring in the marginalized, to, to, to preach the good news to the poor, to heal the sick, to set the captives free. And as we talked about last week, Jesus would go on to deal with our sin, to deal with death. He was gonna, he's going to literally destroy death, and he's going to bring life to all people. And these are all the things that Isaiah literally pointed at 800 years before Jesus was telling this parable. Pretty amazing. And in fact, when one of the Pharisees sitting around the table would have heard that statement, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God, he likely would have thought back immediately to Isaiah's prophecy. Oh yeah, this is, this is what Isaiah was saying. And all of the minds of the Pharisees, these religious leaders who knew the scriptures so well would have gone back to Isaiah's prophecy. And Jesus picks up on that and he specifically uses the language of banquet in this parable. So Luke 14, starting kind of midway through verse 16, says this. A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. Now, in, in Jewish culture, events like this would have actually had like a two-part invitation. First, there was this like more formal, like, uh, out, like long in advance kind of RSVP moment. This, this invitation 
was to help build the party out so that, so that the host would know who was going to be there. And they would build it all around all the people that said yes. Remember, this is a time when there wasn't like quick communication. You couldn't like text somebody. There wasn't a car. You couldn't like just drive down the street. There were no refrigerators. You couldn't, if, if people were late, you couldn't like put it in the fridge or, or put it back in the microwave. None of that existed. So everything had to be timed. Everything had to be planned and organized. The food, the drink, the entertainment, it was very important. Maybe the closest thing that we would have to it is like, like a wedding. And in fact, actually, in Matthew's telling of a very similar parable, he refers to this banquet as a wedding banquet. So, day of, the servants would then be sent out into the community to gather all of those who had accepted the invitation. Timing was everything, as I mentioned. An event like this, it wouldn't happen very often. And the food and the drink on that timetable, it would need to be ready right as the people arrived. But then we read this, Luke 14, verse 18. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married so I can't come. Now, First and foremost, it is important that we catch how incredibly rude this would have been to the host. I mean, this was way more than just an inconvenience. Hospitality in in Middle Eastern culture is just so incredibly important. It's an essential part of life, especially in in the ancient world. I mean, it's, it's... it's difficult for us in the West to kind of get our minds around this, especially in our modern Western world. But there, people are living so close together and their lives are interwoven. So there were literally rules around how, we, how they engaged each other, how you accommodated a guest and how you cared for your neighbors. And there were rules for honoring your hosts as well. I remember a time when I was visiting Albania it's an amazing little country. It's kind of across the Adriatic from the boot of Italy. Um, and it's definitely kind of Mediterranean culture. It has a lot of very more similar vibes to kind of the Middle East in many ways. And it has just that feeling of, of family and, and hospitality and caring for each other and loving each other. So much so that when we got there, our host, who was also kind of a local missionary, he, he kind of laid out some of those rules for us. He said, like, look, here's some of the things you need to know. Here's when people are saying this. This is what they're saying. Here's how to interact with the, with the hosts that are having you to their home so generously. Here's the ways that you respond and how you say thank you. And, and it was great. But one of the things, one of the rules that was so important was he said, and, and above all, because all these, most of these people are, 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 quite a bit, are quite a bit poorer if they give you something, you need to receive it. If, if they give you something to eat, you need to eat it and, and, and be thankful graciously. If they give you something to drink, you need to drink it. It's very disrespectful if you don't. And so we went on from that thing and like, okay, I can, I can get into that. I kind of have a little missionary principle. I'm always up for eating whatever's in front of me in any culture that I go to. I love it. Um, so we go out, and it was a great day. We got to meet so many amazing people. I remember the first home, or maybe it was the second home we went into, was this little old lady, uh, and she just, she just lived in this small little house, uh, and she was so excited to have these Americans come into her home, and she wanted to tell us about her life and tell, her, tell us about her kids and, and her son that had died in the war, and it was an amazing moment. Uh, but she also, she just felt driven to want to give us something. She was being a good host. But she had nothing. She was very poor. 
Uh, and so finally, you could see kind of a light bulb moment. Light on, she remembered something. And she went up to her bookshelf and she pulled out this box of candy. And uh, th- there was so much dust on it. It was a little bit terrifying. And, and I think the candy might have been from like the 30s, maybe. Um, and she pulled it out and she started like offering it to us. And clearly, as you looked inside, it was just little hard candies. They were, they were covered in dust, like thick dust. And you like pulled it out. And, and, I, and I looked over at, the, at our guide. I'm like, we, we're, we're eating this? And he's just like, mm-hmm. Like, you're eating this. I'm like, okay. The moment she like turned her head for a second, I was just like wiping it off my shirt. And, and I just popped it back in and it was not tasty. I'm just going to say it was not tasty. But we, we honored her. We wanted her to know that she was so appreciated. Uh, a couple houses later, uh, we were uh, in, a, in a neighborhood that had this couple. They were just an amazing couple. And they hadn't been able to pick up any groceries and they had nothing to offer. So, and you, no matter how many times you say, no, 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 it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. They're just like, no, we, we want to host you. We do have something though that you need to try. It's an Albanian like specialty drink. You have to try some of it. And I'm like, okay, what is this? And they come out with these like tiny little cups, like itsy bitsy little cups of this clear liquid. I had no idea what it was. It's called Rocky. And um, they start, they serve it all to, to, to the few of us that were in the room. And I look over at my host. And I'm like, I'm, so I'm supposed to drink this? And he's, he kind of looks at me, but there's like a little glint in his eye. <laughs> I feel like he knows something that I don't know. In fact, I actually like, he, he may have even had a little mischievousness in his eyes as well. And so I'm like, okay, nobody told me how to drink this. So I just tossed it back, which was a big mistake. I imagine drinking something between like fire and rocket fuel. That's what it felt like. Apparently, Rocky is a like a homemade um, like alcohol that is just like, you can use it for like cleaning things, but you can also drink it. And, uh, and, and it just burned down, going down. And you know, so I was just like, thank you, with like tears in the corner of my, thank you so much, it's delicious, thank you. Um, you want more? I'm like, no, no, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. Uh, but, but finally, at the, at the end of our day, we actually were, we went to a family's home. And in that family's home, they had, they had been anticipating us and they had set up just this beautiful table. Uh, and it, was, it reminded me so much of this story. Like the, the, the spread had been laid out. There was all this freshly chopped vegetables and olives and different types of food that were just very Mediterranean. It was beautiful, just beautiful. Uh, and, and I sat down and they seated me at the seat of honor because I was the oldest of the guests that had come. And the father sat across from me and everybody sat down the table on both sides. And, and the mom came and she literally laid out the plate in front of every single person. And she left the last dish for me. And it was, I, was, I was getting quite hungry because I'm looking around and it looked amazing. Kind of this collection of vegetables and rice with a beautiful piece of what looked like roasted goat or maybe it was lamb sitting on top of it. It was just, it was beautiful. And I was getting hungry. Uh, and I'm sitting there, so I'm waiting for mine because I'm in the seat of honor and they left the best cut for me. Well, apparently in Albanian con- uh, culture, the best cut is actually like the stomach fat. And so what I ended up with was a bed of rice with a giant chunk of fat on it. And it was like, like congealed and it was jiggly even a little bit. And I sat there with my fork and my knife trying to figure out what I was going to do. How was I going to actually eat this substance? Because I was just like, I'm not a big like eat the fat guy. And I'm like, okay, I mean, that might be hard to tell for me. But anyways, 
I, I cut into it and I like dipped it and I kind of pulled powdered rice on it and some vegetables and I ate it and I was like looking at her and smiling and it was every muscle in my body to like force it down into my gut. But the reality is it was actually was quite tasty. And honestly, to see the look in her face, to, 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 to honor me in this way, it, it just, it, it was like it did something inside my soul. I just realized how important hospitality and hosting is in this country. Now, in the U.S., we tend to think about rules around hospitality as very optional. Our deep value for kind of personal preference, it overshadows many of those rules. And we might be on our best behavior at like a special event or something like that. But, but for the most part, we kind of like to keep our options open. And, and it's very, very different in these honor-based cultures where hospitality is so pivotal. And for them, it's, it's very much a part of being human. It's a part of being and living in a community. These guests, they make excuses. And in the face of an already accepted invitation, they don't come. And their excuses, frankly, they're weak. I mean, nobody would have said yes to the initial invite if they were truly unable to make it work. And seeing an already purchased field or, or five yoke of oxen or hanging out with your new wife, like all of those things could be done the next day. These were excuses. Something had happened, maybe some gossip, maybe the host had moved down the social ladder and he was no longer trending on social media. Either way, his banquet was not the place to be. But the host wasn't having it. There was a schedule for the food, the drink, the entertainment. This banquet was going to happen. So in anger, he sends out his servants, fine, find me some people to enjoy this party. We read in Luke 1421, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you've ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. The host sends the servants out to the streets, to the alleys, gather the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. And by the way, this is a really important list that we're going to circle back to in just a moment. So, so put a pin in it. But basically, the point is that the master tells his servants to gather those from the margins of society who would never normally be invited to a banquet like this. Now, maybe he did it out of spite. Maybe, he, maybe it was in his desire to not see anything wasted, but... The point is, he would have a full house. Now, the Pharisees, the religious leaders in the room, might have been confused to themselves and wondering, like, who would ever, why would anyone reject an invitation to a banquet like this? It's a, it's a great opportunity to be noticed. It's a great opportunity to be honored. But when Jesus used that list, the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, they would have immediately thought back to the prophets, oh, He's referring back to those stories. And then they would have begun to wonder, well, then who are the people that are those foolish, rude individuals who rejected the invitation? And that, that is the moment that the penny would have dropped. They were the ones 
who were snubbing the invitation to the feast in the kingdom of God. They were the rude guests making up lame excuses. Awkward. But then it got worse. There was still room around the table. So, so the master tells his servants to go out to the roads and the country lanes. And in light of previous teachings that we've seen on Jesus, there was only one likely interpretation of who those people were. Those on the country roads and on, on, the, on the lanes were likely Gentiles, non-Jews. You can imagine the religious leaders putting this all together in their mind. Sure, yeah, invite the poor and the lame. At least they're Jewish. But Gentiles, foreigners, how could you invite them? Yet Isaiah was pretty clear, wasn't he? I mean, this feast was for all people, all people. The veil would be, would be torn or removed for all people. The Lord would wipe away the tears of all people. Those blessed who would eat of the feast in the kingdom of God would be made up of every tongue, every tribe, every nation. Now, what's interesting in this teaching is that Jesus draws attention to this fact that that they would need to be compelled. The servants would have to go out and find them, which by the way, we're gonna talk more about that next week. But then they would also need an explanation for the invitation. Why was it that the master was having this banquet and and why would they be invited? And they would be hesitant because they would feel like a community of outsiders. They needed to be compelled. And all of the weight of this, as as people are listening to this parable, all the weight of it begins falling on those listening. And this thought that that was so reinforced by the Pharisees, but this feast, it's for us. Jesus draws attention to the powerful reality that God's vision had always been, has always been to bless the nations, to bring light into dark places. Jesus ends the parable with this very provocative thought for his religious audience. Those who had been originally invited were now excluded. And those who had originally been excluded were now invited. And I don't imagine Jesus was invited back to this Pharisee's house again. Now, clearly, clearly, this text is one of those moments where where Jesus is dealing with the reality of a very broken religious system that had lost touch with its own story. Remember, this was was all in the text. I mean, we we talked about Abraham. We, we, we talked about the original calling. We read the passage in Isaiah. It was all there. But many of the Jewish people had lost touch with God's heart. And now, we know that never happens today. That was sarcasm, by the way. But I think this parable has so much to teach us about what it means to become like Jesus, to become more like him, to have more of his heart inside of us. It, It teaches us things like how to not lose touch or why we should not lose touch with our story, right? I mean, constantly grounding ourselves. We need to go back to the scriptures and and, and finding ourselves and and learning about who God is and and what he's called us to be. His family, his ready-to-go servants that are inviting and serving and living generously. 
This parable, it, it, it teaches us that staying close to God's heart for all people is really important. That, that actually when we, when we become followers of Jesus, his spirit dwells inside of us and literally places his love in us for those around us. And it, it should change how we view our family, our classmates, our coworkers, and our neighbors. This parable, it teaches us about staying obedient, like not, not throwing out the easy excuses when we kind of want to. We've all been there, right? It's just there's times where it's like, oh God, that's really inconvenient right now. I, couldn't I just push it off? But, but this parable challenges that, challenges that in us. It'd be so much easier to just sleep in for an extra 30 minutes instead of getting up and spending time in the scriptures. Wouldn't it? Or it would be so much easier to not follow through on that commitment that, that you made to God so long ago. But God's like, don't make excuses. Come, participate. But I, I think, honestly, the most hands-on takeaway that this parable gives us is the connection between hospitality and being a blessing. Between the banquet and the nation's. I mean, what does it look like to live as a blessing to all people? To create space around our table for those in the margins. Well, it just so happens that Jesus had spoken about this just before his parable. And that was a part of what teed it up. It's part of what created the awkward scene in the first place. And this little teaching is, I'm just gonna say it, it made his, the people in the room uncomfortable. And frankly, it makes me a little uncomfortable. Backing up just a few verses, we read this in Luke 14, verse 12. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. There's that list again, that, that combination of people again. And Jesus uses this little grouping to refer in a general way to those who had been pushed to the margins of society. Uh, in a society that had very little support for those who could not support themselves, they had been cast aside. But the main idea here that Jesus is getting at is, is that these people could never repay you. We invite them because they can't repay you. Now, I want to clarify three things as we kind of are wrapping up our teaching for this morning and, and kind of clarify this little part. First, Jesus, he's not saying don't hang out with your family, okay? He's actually just assuming that you will. A part of regular everyday life and cultures, this crisscrossing of all those people that are our kin and our friends. Our lives are, are a place of ongoing and constant hospitality. What Jesus is talking about here is very special, specific invitation. Times when we intentionally focus outward and invite those in who are on the margins. But second... This group, 
may look a little different for us today in our day and age. Though many of these needs are still very prevalent, those who cannot repay might also include people who are stuck, who are hopeless, who are lonely. It might include that single parent that you know who barely has enough room to breathe and would just love to be an adult for an evening, you know? It might include that college student that always comes by themselves and sits in front of you in church and, 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 and they probably haven't had like a real home-cooked dinner for like months. Like, it, it might include the widow down the street dealing with parts of her life right now that she's having to, to do alone that she's never had to do her whole life and she's just looking for family, just looking for a table to join. All of these are examples of people who, who, who likely do not have the capacity to repay. They can be invited to join you at the table. Our culture has created new categories for those who can't, uh, who can't repay. And so we need to live with, with our eyes wide open. We need to live like missionaries. And the third thing that I want to draw attention to in this text is that this, this is not about pity. Though Jesus does show pity at times, um, this is different. This is about living an invitational life. This is about creating space for life, for value, for honor, to host and welcome. That, that same feeling that I had when I sat around that couple's table and I looked into that woman's eyes as she was honoring me, it's about creating a space for people to feel honored and loved. You know, if Jesus had simply wanted us to just do pity, he would have simply said, just make sure you cook extra food and give it to people, which is also a great idea. But instead, he calls us to relationship, relationship around a table, relationship that includes being a blessing. This was his plan all along. You know, we, we look back at Genesis and we looked at Isaiah Remember, Jesus is the, he is the one bringing the blessing to all people. Jesus is the one that's pulling his father's family back together around a family table. Jesus dealt with death and, and he removed the disgrace that had fallen on all of humanity. And today, Jesus is still doing that very same work through his people, through us. Every time we gather around a table. We create the opportunity for God's family to have a feast in the kingdom moment. It, it's what makes the teaching, this teaching of Jesus so practical. Like we all have tables, maybe except for a couple of the college students out there. Um, and, and, and likely we all have empty seats. But can you hear the voice of that master? My house will be full. Jesus portrays his father as this radically generous host who's like, I just, none of this is going to waste. Bring people in, compel them to come, explain to them why they need to be at my feast. You know, this morning during pre-gathering prayer, uh, we, we, we often get words and people will share stuff. And there were two things that just were shared that I, I had to like include in my teaching because I feel like they're so central to what God does, what Jesus does when we open up our table to other people. The first one was the word refuge. 
that God wanted to create a space of refuge. Have you ever thought about the, the fact that those chairs that sit around your table might be a place of refuge for somebody? That there might be somebody out there who's just needing to be protected, needing to be cared for, needing to be loved, needing to be invited in, and that empty chair, it might be a place of refuge for them. I mean, God does that for us all the time. And maybe our tables are to be a place of refuge for somebody else. The other word, the second word was the word do-overs. That God is creating a space for do-overs. Every think about the place around your table as being an invitation for, for somebody who maybe, maybe they had a relationship with God a long time ago, or maybe they were curious, but through circumstances of life, through hurts, through broken hearts, through, through being a part of a family that doesn't always treat each other well, they've walked away. Maybe you have a chair around your table that's a chair that's reserved for somebody who just needs a do-over. They need a place to find some safety, a place to find some healing, a place to find home. In Revelation 19, we get this incredible picture of the end of days. It's the wedding supper of the Lamb. And, and in it, there's, it's, you could just see John like furiously trying to write down all of the details that he's seeing in the text. And in the midst of that, an angel leans over to John and says, hey, write this down. Blessed are all those who are invited to the wedding supper. This is the table that all of our tables are pointing to. This final wedding feast at the end of days when Jesus comes back in his fullness and rallies everyone around him and his heart breathing out life to all of us, our tables are a reflection. They point forward to that table. Imagine if we had a vision for our table that way. Wouldn't we think of it a little bit differently? I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't we get excited about creating space and, and planning out that part of that special invitation to bring in somebody who can't pay us back? This, this is the privilege of being hosts and servants who throw kingdom parties. You know, pointing at that party that Jesus has been preparing since he went back to be with his father. What an incredible party that will be. Now, I get this. Life, life is busy. I am in this exact, this message was so challenging for me as I was reading this. I know this takes time, but I just want to encourage you not to overthink it. Sometimes it's as simple as just pulling out the chair and inviting the person that's there. God may have some powerful work that he wants to do around your kitchen table, a way of healing, a path of redemption, but we do have an event coming up. So in, a, in kind of in a goal to kind of make this like a little bit of like a, like a, hey, let's help everybody out kind of way, I want you guys to save the date, May 5th. We're, we've invited this incredible folk band to the church. They're called uh, the Riverside, right, David? The, the Riverside. They're awesome. And we're going to do like a family style event here where there's going to, you know, there's going to be food for purchase and, they, and we're going to come and we want to, I want to encourage you, invite people. It's not going to be some big evangelistic thing. It's, it's actually just going to be a time for us to be a family and to let people experience and encounter an empty seat around the table. 
So tuck that away, May 5th. Create a, a space of blessing. Would you guys all stand up to your, your feet so I can pray for us? Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your love and for your life, the life that you've poured out for us. And Lord, honestly, we, we want to be those people. Most of us in this room, we wouldn't even be here if somebody hadn't created space around their table. And so we want you to show us, treat, teach us how to do this, help us to become your family like you always intended. Lord, we love you and we thank you so much. And I, I just bless this community in your name, Jesus, to go and create tables for the kingdom. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to partner with us through giving, visit us at JesusChurch.org.